Hey everybody, and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast, where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking archaeology with Jody Magnus, the Keenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism. You've spent your career studying history not just through books, but by actually getting your hands dirty and working at these sites to dig up the history yourself. Why are these excavations that you work on so important and what can we learn from them? For one thing, archaeology is relevant because it supplements our knowledge of the past. I mean, how do we how do we know about the past? A lot of our information comes from written sources, literary sources, what we call historical sources. So what people in antiquity wrote down about their world. But that view of the past is, first of all, very partial because we don't have complete historical sources. We only have maybe it's been estimated less than one percent of all ancient literature that was written, which has survived. And second, even the literature that we have from antiquity that survived is biased because it was written from the viewpoint of the people who wrote it and those were mostly upper class or elite men who had particular interests and particular biases so we don't learn for the most part about the viewpoints and the everyday lives of other kinds of people for example so one of the reasons why archaeology is relevant and important is because it supplements our understanding and our information of the past as archaeology when we dig something up, we dig up not just the palaces or houses of the wealthy, the elite, but also the houses of everyday people. We shed light on lives of women, slaves, children. We learn about industries, about agriculture. So in that regard, archaeology is very important because it provides a lot of information about the past that we would not have otherwise. Now, why is learning about the past relevant in general? You know, it's sort of trite to say, but people have, you know, often say this and it's it's true, actually. It's really impossible to understand the world that we live in today and where we're going in terms of our future direction without having a good understanding of the past. We It's all about context and archaeology is all about context. So archaeology helps provide context, not just for the past, but also about the world we live in today, how we got to where we are today and where we're going. And, you know, sometimes when people learn about the past, like, for example, I work in the Roman world, or, or they look at ancient Egypt, for example, they say, wow, it's amazing that people had the technology and the ability to do the things that they did thousands of years ago without the sort of machines and technology that we have today. This uncovering of artifacts and history can't be an easy task. So what's the process like when you're actually on the site working on these digs? One of the things that I always teach my students is that archaeology is a process of destruction. Now, you know, archaeology is a science, although it's not an exact science, because in the exact sciences, what you do is you conduct an, an experiment and then you replicate or try to replicate the experiment, right? Well, archaeology is an experiment which cannot be replicated because once you have taken that shovel of dirt out of the ground or taken that stone out of the ground, you can never put it back the way it was. So archaeology is a science where you only get one bite of the apple, so to speak, and it means that you have to try and do it right the first time. And we don't always get it right the first time, but what we do do 
is document as thoroughly everything that we do along the way so that even if we do make mistakes, we can go back and check in our records and see where we made a mistake and try and understand that. So if you go into the field with us, yes, you'll see we're all doing hard physical labor, we're shoveling, we're picking, we're hoeing, whatever, but there is a an enormous amount of, let's say, paperwork, although not, of, not all of it anymore is on paper now, a lot of it is electronic, but quote unquote paperwork that's going on around this process. That is people are re- sitting and recording, they're photographing, they're measuring, they're taking photographs. So everything is documented as fully as possible. And you know, the ultimate goal of archeology span is not to dig. The ultimate goal of archeology span is to publish what we've dug up because only then can we make that information available to others. If we fail to publish what we've dug up, then essentially what we have done is destroyed those ancient remains and we have left no record of them. So what you wanna do ultimately after the end of the excavation is take all of those things that you recorded as you were going along in that process of destruction, publish it in as complete a manner as possible, and ideally it should be possible then for somebody else to come along, read your publication, and reconstruct what was there when you started digging, which of course is no longer there because you dug it out of the ground. You obviously need a lot of people working at these sites to get the job done. So who are the people who are working there? Are these all other archaeologists or some of these people just volunteers who want to partake in this? My current dig is at a an ancient Jewish village in Galilee, near, very close to the Sea of Galilee, called Hukok, which it looks weird when you spell it. It's spelled H-U-Q-O-Q. We have a website, hukok.org, so people can go and check it out if they're interested. And it's a Jewish village that was occupied during the time of Jesus, and in fact is very close, just a couple of miles away from Capernaum, which was, of course, the base of Jesus's Galilean ministry, and also very close to Migdal, or ancient Magdala, which was the hometown of Mary Magdalene. So we're really right in the heart of the area that was the center of Jesus's Galilean ministry. And it was a Jewish village that was occupied in the time of Jesus. However, the remains that we are digging up date to a couple of centuries after the time of Jesus. And the main structure that we are working on now is a monumental Jewish synagogue that dates to approximately 400 AD or CE, depending on which terminology you want to use. And what's so special about this synagogue is that it's decorated with the most extraordinary mosaics that you've ever seen. So, you know, we go into the field once a month every summer, the month of June, and I offer students the opportunity, UNC students, the opportunity to participate on the excavation for academic credit through UNC study abroad. There are no prerequisites. So students do not have to be archeology span majors or have any archeology span background or religious studies or classics or anything like that. They can come from any background at all. And many of them do. Of course, we do get also people who are interested in archeology, span but, but um, a lot of students do this just because they're curious. And also, by the way, they get six academic credits for one month of participation on the dig, so it's a pretty good deal. And the program includes not just the digging, but it's actually a complete program with field trips and with lectures. And so it's really a wonderful experience for students, especially if they've never been to that part of the world before. So what we get in on the dig then is a sort of a, a mixture of people. About half of the people on the dig are in some way staff members, specialists in various categories, the people who work on the pottery, on the animal bones, who supervise the excavation areas, you know, all of that sort of stuff. We do have, by the way, students who also work as staff members. We have a lot of students, including UNC undergrads, who have 
been on the dig repeatedly. They come the first year, they'll do it for credit. They like it so much, they continue to come back and they work their way up into staff positions. So we have a number of those. So overall, we have sort of like this sort of mixture of people, of specialists from various places, we have graduate students from UNC, my, my students, and we have undergraduates. And because uh, students from other universities can also sign up for the course through UNC Study Abroad, we also do get students from other universities who participate with us. And in fact, the DIG includes a consortium of universities that right now includes the University of Toronto, Brigham Young University, and Baylor University. So you mentioned your work at Hukok, so let's dive into that a little bit more. Why did you want to dig at Hukok? What makes it different than anywhere else? That's actually a great question. It is the key question, why Hukok? You know, we aren't actually like Indiana Jones, which means that we're not treasure hunters. Archaeology is not about looking for treasure. It's not about looking for the lost ark. Um, Archaeology is actually about understanding the past. So it's sort of like history. Historians also want to understand the past. But historians, in order to understand the past, focus mainly on written sources, literary sources. And archaeologists learn about the past by focusing mainly on human material remains, which we dig up, right? Human material culture, as we have discussed. Um, So no archaeologist goes into the field randomly in order to look for treasure or to look for good stuff. We go into the field like any other scientist with a set of research questions. And that's precisely how I arrived at Hukok. Um, I arrived at Hukok because over the last couple of decades, I have become increasingly interested in ancient synagogues. And a lot of my uh, research questions about ancient synagogues focus on a particular kind of synagogue building, which is called a Galilean type synagogue. And by that, I mean not synagogues that are located in Galilee necessarily, although Galilean type synagogues are only in Galilee, but Galilean type synagogues mean a kind of building that is characterized by a certain kind of architectural layout, certain kinds of decoration, certain features. The best example of a Galilean type synagogue is actually the one at Capernaum, which is just a couple of miles away from Hukok. So I had some research questions about Galilean type synagogues and I wanted to excavate one. And how do you find, by the way, an unexcavated Galilean-type synagogue? How did I find Hukok? Fortunately, Israel is probably the most thoroughly explored country on Earth archaeologically, which means that people have literally walked over every inch of the country and documented remains that are visible on the surface of the ground, even without excavation. So what I did was I took records that had been written by other archaeologists who had wandered around. Some of them had visited Hukok, and they had noticed that on the surface of the ground were remains that suggested that there was a Galilean-type synagogue at the site. And after visiting a number of sites like Hukok, where these kinds of remains had been documented by different archaeologists, I decided for various reasons that Hukok was the best candidate to answer my questions. And so I began the excavation in 2011. Very fortunately and kind of serendipitously in that very first summer in 2011, we already came down on the synagogue building and in 2012 we got to the floor and we discovered the mosaics. And that was a surprise because Galilean type synagogues typically do not have mosaic floors. They have flagstone pavements, stone pavement inside, not mosaics. We came down on mosaics and since then, every summer we've been uncovering more and more and the mosaics just every summer get more and more spectacular. What is it about these mosaics that make them so special? Why is this such a special find? 
The mosaics are, are really interesting. There's an awful lot we can learn about the mosaics. And, you know, already there's a lot written about the mosaics, but in the future, once this is all, we're all done and it's all published, I can guarantee you that there's going to be volumes and volumes and volumes of scholarly studies about our mosaics. So to sort of boil it down, it's not just that we have mosaics decorating our synagogue. We have other ancient synagogues from this period that are decorated with mosaics. And it's not just that our mosaics include biblical scenes and human figures and images and things like that, because we have other synagogues from this period that have those things. So in that regard, our discoveries are not new, although they add to you know what we have had before. But our synagogue has more scenes than other synagogues typically do, because most synagogues, most ancient synagogues, have figured scenes, if they have figured scenes in mosaics. The figured scenes are only in the central part of the hall. And in our synagogue, the areas around the sides, what are called the aisles, also have figured scenes. So first of all, our synagogue has more figured scenes than other ancient synagogues, but also the content of our scenes is either unique, in some cases unique, that means unparalleled, or very rare. And so, for example, we have two scenes of Samson. One is Samson and the foxes, and the other is Samson carrying the gate of Gaza, which have no other parallels in Israel. No other ancient synagogue in Israel has those scenes of Samson, and there's only one other ancient synagogue in Israel that has any scene of Samson at all. Those are very important. We have a scene which shows the very first non-biblical story ever found decorating an ancient synagogue. Until now, all scenes that were discovered decorating ancient synagogues were taken from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. This is not a biblical story. It has battle elephants in it, so there are no battle elephants in stories in the Old Testament. So it's clearly not connected with the Hebrew Bible. It might be a story that is connected with Alexander the Great. And then this past summer, we had in the center of the hall, where we dug for the first time in the center of the hall, we had two very important biblical scenes. One, Noah's Ark, and the other, the parting of the Red Sea. And the parting of the Red Sea is really amazing because it shows Pharaoh's soldiers and chariots and horses drowning in the sea, and Pharaoh's soldiers are being swallowed by large fish. And this is unparalleled also. So the content of the scenes is unusual. You asked about what's the what's the significance, sort of, right, the bottom line. So one of the interesting things is, there's some interesting things about our synagogue, and this goes back to sort of why I started to dig at Hukok. It wasn't just that I had questions about Galilean-type synagogues, but the big picture question, this is really the nitty-gritty. There is a debate among archaeologists who work in Israel about the dating of, of some types of synagogue buildings. And I think that many synagogue buildings in Israel are dated too early by my colleagues. For example, Galilean-type synagogues are typically dated to the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD, and I think that they date to the 5th and 6th centuries AD. The, the difference in dating is because the other school of thought, not mine, dates on the basis of mainly style, architectural style, whereas I believe that the archaeological material, the pottery and coins found in association with the construction of these buildings indicates a later date, and that's actually why I came to Hukok. Now, this debate about dating is not just some dry academic debate. It has real historical ramifications, because if these synagogues, which are very large buildings, were built in the second to third centuries, it means that these Jewish congregations built them when they were living under pagan Roman rule. 
But if they were built in the 5th and 6th centuries, it means they were built when Jews were living under Byzantine Christian rule, because by then, the Roman Empire had become a Christian empire. And from the long-term historical point of view backwards, there's this kind of widespread notion that once the Roman Empire became a Christian empire, that Jews began to suffer. They were oppressed. And that Jews could not have built monumental buildings like this under oppressive Christian rule. So I was curious, do we in fact have evidence to support my view, which is that in fact Jews continued to prosper under Christian rule and built these kinds of buildings or not? Well, our synagogue at Hukok dates to the 5th century. We've been able to show that on the basis of archaeological evidence. And then when you look at the mosaics in this context, what it means is that these mosaics were chosen by the Jewish congregation when the dominant culture of the empire was already Christian. So one of the very interesting things is, you know, on the one hand, clearly Hukok was a village, a Jewish village that continued to prosper even under Christian rule. And our synagogue is not just monumental. The mosaics are extraordinarily expensive, which means that this was a very prosperous village. So these Jewish villagers continued to prosper even under Christian rule. But at the same time, there is a lot of violence in our mosaics. Samson's doing all sort of bad things to his enemies the Philistines. The fish are swallowing Pharaoh's soldiers whole alive in the Red Sea, for example. There's a lot of violence. So what it suggests is that even as these Jews were continuing to prosper under Christian rule, that they were somehow looking forward to an overthrow of the existing world order, and that ultimately, at least some of our mosaics, suggest messianic or eschatological expectations, by which I mean expectations that the end of days was going to arrive. And by the way, similar expectations were circulating among the Christian population at the same time, who were looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. To learn more about the Hukok Project and find out how you can get involved, check out the project's website at huqoq.org. And don't forget to check back to unc.edu next week for another episode of Well Said.